Hey everybody, this is Instructor Chris. Today's lecture is Lecture 2, EMS Systems. In this course, we will be talking about the EMT's well-being, BSI, PPE, infectious disease to include airborne and bloodborne pathogens, as well as safety and hazard awareness, and then we're going to end off with the grieving process that talks about death and dying. Tort and criminal actions, evidence preservation, statutory responsibilities, mandatory reporting, ethical principles and moral obligations, as well as end-of-life issues. One of the key concepts we want you to take out of this lecture is the first principle, which is do no harm. Secondarily, it's being kind. These are two principles that you should practice every day that you are at work. The profession that you have chosen to enter is full of liability, but there are ways that you can avoid the legal exposure. The first thing is, is you need to act in good faith. As long as your actions are in good faith, you are intending to help someone, you should be able to stay out of any type of legal exposure. You have to apply the proper standard of care. So the treatments that we teach you in the EMT program, if you apply those techniques with good faith, you are essentially protected by the law. With that, you have to know why you're doing something and what you are doing. Oftentimes, EMT students will just look at us and say, well, I understand why I have to do that. Well, there are reasons why you have to do that, and that's why it's very important to know why we do certain things in certain circumstances and why we don't do certain things in in certain circumstances. So this is why it's very important for you to pay attention to the key concepts of this lecture and the other lectures, including the treatment modalities that we perform on our patients. So let's begin to talk about consent. What is consent? First of all, Any adult who is mentally competent can refuse treatment. Even if they are dying right there in front of you, a competent adult can refuse treatment. And we're going to get into others' various types of consent. So the key here is to understand the different types of consent we will be talking about over the next few minutes. Now, the first type of consent we are going to talk about is informed consent. Another way we can put this is actual consent. So, depending on where you go to school, you can actually see this type of consent referred to as informed or actual. This consent is when the patient gives you their consent to treat them. So as the EMT, when we enter the residence, the workplace, or we find the person on the street and we introduce ourselves, hello, I am paramedic Chris Cano, Uh, ma'am, sir, may I go ahead and take a look at you? And they answer yes, they are giving you that actual consent to be able to treat them. Now the second consent is referred to as implied consent. This consent applies to those patients who are unconscious 
or otherwise incapable of making informed consent. So the basic theory behind this consent is that if a competent adult was awake and not unconscious, they would give you their consent. So this applies to the person you find down in the street, nobody's around, there's no family members, and the person, the patient, is unconscious. You're able to provide medical attention to this person based on implied consent. Now, applied consent can also apply to minors. The guiding principle regarding minors is that if a true emergency exists and no consent is available, we treat the patient. Consent is implied. The reason for that is a parent should want their child to be treated, especially in an emergency. Now, what we do recommend that if you're in this situation, you should get a hold of your dispatch and ensure that law enforcement is responding. Law enforcement will eventually take over the guardianship of the patient until parents can be located and notified. So now we've talked about informed slash actual consent and implied consent. Now the third consent we have is involuntary consent. Involuntary consent applies to those patients who are mentally ill, having a behavioral crisis, or are developmentally delayed. So as you prepare to take either your block test or your national registry test, you need to understand that there's three different types of consent. Actual implied consent, that's your first one, and this is when the patient gives you their consent for you to treat them. The next one is implied consent. This is when the patient is unconscious or unable to give you consent, and we base our treatment on the fact that a competent adult would want to be treated for that emergency. It can also apply for the child who's having a medical emergency or emergency, and the parents are nowhere on the scene. In this situation, the EMT can utilize or treat the patient based on implied consent. And the last is involuntary, and that has to deal with our people who have their mental capacity, which is diminished, or having some type of behavioral issues. So that's a recap on consent. Now let's talk about forcible restraint. The one thing we want to take away from forcible restraint is that we never restrain patients prone. This is face down. This is the position that you see police officers put suspects in when they're going to make an arrest. We never put patients in this position. Why would we want to restrain someone? Well, we may have to restrain them because law enforcement has determined that they are a danger to themselves or others. In California, we refer to this as a 5150. Other states may have similar codes, but essentially this is a mental health hold. It's a 72-hour hold. This hold can only be performed by law enforcement or medical doctors. Now, with all this consent, can someone refuse treatment? Absolutely. A conscious, alert adult with decision-making capability can refuse treatment, regardless if the treatment will keep them alive. So, this adult has to, first of all, be age of consent. Once again, in the state of California, this is 18, and be mentally competent. 
even if the treatment or non-treatment is a result of death or serious injury, they can legally refuse this treatment. So do not think that, well, if I don't help them, they're going to die, um, will help you in a legal matter. They can refuse treatment. Now, if you do have that patient who has refused treatment, we want to do a few things before we leave the scene. First, we want to encourage them to allow us to provide them care. Talk to them. Just don't believe, okay, well, you don't want help. Okay, we're leaving. Goodbye. No. Attempt to talk to them and attempt to tell them the reason why you want to treat them. And once again, give them the ramifications of what's going to possibly happen if you leave. If they still want to refuse treatment, make sure they sign the appropriate forms. We refer to that as against medical advice, AMA. So make sure they sign the form. Now, if they refuse to sign the form, you should get your form signed by witnesses. And hopefully by this time, the fire department's on scene, paramedics are on scene, or even law enforcement's on scene. But if these three entities are not on scene, have a family member witness it. Once you have documented their refusal, just remind them that if they change their mind, they are more than welcome to call you back. This is the last thing we would do before we leave. Now, an area where EMTs can get into trouble is sharing patient confidential information. The only time that we can share information is if the patient signs a release. The second time is when the patient records are subpoenaed, and the third is when needed for medical billing by the billing personnel. We are not allowed to share patient information outside of those resources. Now, yes, you can give the nurse who's taking over the patient care a full patient report, but let me give you an example of how this works. Let's say you have a patient that tells you that they have HIV. You cannot tell your partner that the patient has HIV. That would be violating the patient's confidentiality. Now, the best you can do is remind your patient, your partner to use great BSI or universal precautions. That should be a big hint to your patient. But beyond that, there's not much you can do. Now, you could ask the patient, can you tell me, can you tell my partner what you just told me? And if the patient wants to, then they can go ahead and repeat what they gave you. But this is how strict we are when it comes to patient confidentiality. Now, I just want to remind you as you listen to this lecture, this lecture is given in the classroom with a PowerPoint. So as of right now, I'm just going through the slides and trying to give you the information that's on the slides, as well as adding what would be the side stories to drive the information home. I do challenge you to come back to these lectures as they will change over time. So with that, let's talk about advanced directives. Advanced directives are basically a do not resuscitate or otherwise known as a DNR. It's an order that gives medical professionals the permission or permission to not resuscitate. However, do not resuscitate does not mean do not treat. We now are seeing living wills and advanced health care directives where 
the patient doesn't want to suffer. They don't want heroic measures such as CPR, but they also don't want to die in pain. So if it means that uh, suctioning their airway will keep them comfortable, then the EMT is allowed to do that. So when a family presents to you these advanced directives, you have to read them to see what the patient's wishes are. So is it total no treatment or is there some treatment? So these are the things that you need to read when you are handed that DNR or advanced directive. Now to coincide with this, we also in those advanced directives, they're kind of uh, also introduced surrogates for decisions. This is when family members have been given durable powers of attorney regarding the health care of the patient. Now, another part to advanced directives are durable powers of attorney. So what this is, is someone has recognized that maybe their family members aren't going to make the best choices for them. So they find surrogates for them that will make or carry out their wishes, essentially. I go back to a quick story where my friend Richard called me out of the blue one day and asked me what I would do in a particular situation. And I told him I would unplug you. I wouldn't let you lie there and suffer. So then he tells me that I'm one of his durable powers. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, Richard's fear was that his wife and his children would not make the proper medical decisions for him. So he sought out three friends to be responsible for his health care needs if he was ever incapacitated. So that's where, once again, someone else has been given the authority over the patient when the patient lacks the capacity to be able to make their own decisions. Uh, there's, this is also known as health care proxies. Okay, so let's switch gears now. Let's talk about physical signs of death. First, only a physician could determine cause of death. That's what a coroner is, is a physician. So based on their investigation, they will determine what caused the person's death, what they died of. Now, we have a term called presumptive signs of death. So what are presumptive signs of death? The first one is no neurological refer uh, reflexes. So the patient does res doesn't respond to painful stimuli and pupils are fixed and dilated. So this tells us neuro is gone. Next are no respirations, no pulse, and the patient is cold or cool to the touch. Now we do have some physical signs of the death which would tell the EMT that the victim, for all intents and purposes, is beyond resuscitation. These definitive signs of death are uh, decapitation, so speaks for itself, rigor mortis, which is also known as stiffening, dependent lividity, that's when the blood settles in the lower parts of the body, giving us that bruising effect, and putrefaction, which is a sign of decomposition. Now, if you do have a death that you feel is suspicious, you need to call law enforcement and get law enforcement involved. Majority of these cases that law enforcement respond on will become medical examiner cases. And that's because the involvement depends on the nature or the scene of the death. Um, is there something suspicious? Was it a suicide? Was there a violent death? Was it death from an accident? All these various different things would be a coroner's case. 
So you got to definitely remember that we got to make sure law enforcement is responding to these DOA calls that we're on as well. When you're doing your assessments, one of the things that you need to do are determine that your patient doesn't have special needs. One of the things you can do is you can look for medical alert tags. They were very popular when I was an EMT. Um, they were bracelets, but then they became necklaces. Um, now there's all different things that people will have to indicate that they're organ donor, they have allergies, they have a DNR on file, uh, maybe they have medical conditions such as diabetes or epilepsy or other uh, some special serious condition. So we want to look for those things that are on the patient that may indicate what their wishes are or what they may be suffering from. Okay, so now let's start talking about what you can do for your patients. First thing that we're going to talk about is scope of practice. This is the outline of the care that you can provide. Now, you will have different scopes of practice. You will have a state scope of practice, and you will have a federal scope of practice. All right, so now let's start discussing the position of an EMT. What can an EMT do and not do? Well, this is based on scope of practice. Scope of practice outlines the care that the EMT can provide. We then have medical direction, which is written by a medical director, and they further define your protocols and standing orders. Various different professions have a scope of practice. So in EMT, you have a scope of practice in the state of California that you have to abide by, just like a paramedic does. If you go outside your scope of practice, you can be considered negligent and you could be charged with a criminal offense. So what would be an example of that? Well, paramedics are allowed to give IVs or administer an IV. So if you're in back of an ambulance and you're not a paramedic student and a paramedic looks to you and says, hey, you want to learn how to start an IV? And you're like, yeah, I would love to learn how to start an IV and they walk you through the steps and you successfully start that IV, well, you are negligent because you are not allowed to start an IV as an EMT unless you are a paramedic student. So with that, you have now possibly committed a, an offense on that patient, and not only will you be in trouble, but so will the paramedic that allowed you to do that IV procedure. Now, what we have next is standard of care. Standard of care is the manner to which you should act. It's what you should do. It goes into ethics. Ethics is considered to be doing the right thing when nobody is looking. You must always be concerned with the safety and welfare of others. You are a patient advocate. You are responsible to ensure that this patient is getting proper medical care you provide the treatment necessary in, at the scene, in your ambulance, and then you properly transfer care to the receiving facility. You don't allow anyone to abuse your patient, verbally abuse your patient. You are responsible for that patient. I always think of it as that person you love the most, how would you want them to be treated? Now, what establishes standard of care? Believe it or not, Standard of care is based on local customs, statutes, 
which are protocols and regulations, professional or institutional standards, such as American Heart CPR, and textbooks. So all of these together will provide us what is considered a standard of care. So a prime example is if you have to perform CPR, you are going to perform CPR based on the standard of care that the American Heart Association has established. So now let's talk about when an EMT has the duty to act. Duty to act can be best defined as the individual's responsibility to provide patient care. Now this duty to act applies once your ambulance responds to a call and treatment is begun. You have to continue treatment. If you fail not to give treatment or stop treatment, you can be considered negligent. Additionally, if you just decide to drive away from your patient, drop off your patient at the hospital without proper transfer, this can be considered abandonment. But your duty to act is when you are on duty, you have the responsibility to provide medical care while you are in uniform and working as an EMT. Now, you don't have a duty to act is when you are driving home on your day off, you see an accident. Yes, you can stop and provide care at this point in time. Once you identify yourself as an EMT, you now have a duty to act. But if you drive by the accident and don't do nothing, there is nothing to say that you have to stop and you will not be negligent in that circumstance. So duty to act only applies when you're on the job. Let's break this down further. In order for an EMT to be guilty of negligence, they have to have committed basically the four components that are tied to negligence. First, negligence is considered a failure to provide the same care that a person with similar training would provide in same or similar or a similar situation. So that's the quote-unquote definition of negligence. Now with that, negligence has four components. One, duty. Two, breach of duty. Three, damages. And four, causation. So with that, for a plaintiff to succeed in a negligent case, the defendant must have owned a duty to care to the plaintiff. Secondarily, the defendant must have breached the duty of care. Thirdly, the defendant must have caused the harm to occur. And fourthly, that causation must have resulted in damages. So how do we say that in simple layman's terms? Well, first, the EMT must have a duty to act. So you're on duty as an EMT, you're in your ambulance, you're in uniform. You have a duty to act. That's the first component. The second part is you fail to act. So you breach that duty. And because of that breach was your causation, damages occur. Patient dies, an injury becomes worse, an illness becomes worse. So these four things wrapped up together is what would negligence would be. What your takeaway from this lecture for testing purposes to, is to understand the four components of negligence. Sometimes in an EMT test, both at the college level as well as your national registry, a test question might say, what are all the components of negligence except? They like to throw in those except questions. That makes you have to identify the one that doesn't match. So understanding the four, as long as you can memorize what the four are, everything else 
will not be part of negligence. Now, as well as with the standard of care, so we just got done talking about negligence, now let's talk about abandonment. Abandonment is the unilateral termination of care by the EMT without patient's consent and making provisions for continual care. Abandonment can occur at the scene or even in the emergency room department. So what does that mean? So let's say you have your patient and you're headed to the emergency room and you get to the emergency room and you know what, you're just tired, you don't want to sit there, you've been waiting for the nurse to get there, but you already put the patient in the bed. Well, you decide you're going to leave without giving the proper transfer information to the nurse that will be assuming care you have now abandoned your patient or let's just say you're on a medical call and you start to treat the patient and you decide that you are no longer going to treat the patient because maybe the patient's treating you poorly because they're upset about something and you decide hey i'm out of here well that's abandonment as well because you did not make any provisions for any continuing care of the patient So it's really important here for the EMT to understand the definition of negligence, which is essentially not providing care. Abandonment is when we have provided care, but then we just stop. And then we leave our patient to their own devices or leave them alone. So it's very important that you're able to know the differences between the two. We had talked earlier about the EMT possibly committing a crime. Well, what are the crimes that an EMT commit could commit while on duty? Well, an EMT could commit assault, battery, kidnapping, and false imprisonment by just doing your job, but doing your job without consent. So let's talk about the first one, assault. By definition, assault is the unlawful placing a person in fear of immediate bodily harm. Unlawful placing a person in fear of immediate bodily harm. That's assault. Battery is the unlawful touching of a person. Unlawful touching of a person. Kidnapping is seizing, confining, abducting, or carrying away by force. Seizing, confining, abducting, or carrying away by force. And last is false imprisonment. Unauthorized confinement of a person. So where could the EMT get into trouble? Well, let's just say you have that patient who has told you that they don't want any type of medical treatment for you. But you're like, I have to save your life. As soon as you touch them, you have committed battery. Now, if you transport them against their will and they are a competent adult, you have just committed kidnapping. And you possibly can have false imprisonment because you're now placing them inside of your ambulance and they're unable to leave. So just on one call alone, you could commit three different violations of the law. This is why it's very important to know when you have implied slash actual consent, implied consent, or involuntary consent. And I do apologize if I said implied consent, I meant actual consent. Another issue that could get the EMT into trouble is defamation. Defamation is a communication of false information that damages a person's reputation. If it's written, it's known as libel. 
and if it's spoken, it's known as slander. Now, defamation could happen when there's a false statement put on a run report or inappropriate comments are made during a conversation. Your run report could end up in court, so it's very imperative that your run report is accurate, relevant, and factual. So we stick to the facts. There's this phrase that we say that if you didn't write it down, it did not happen. This is very true. You have to make sure that anything you do for your patient is properly recorded because if you ever find yourself in court, essentially, if you did not put in your report, no one's going to believe that you did it, even if you did do it. Also, you've got to make sure your reports are complete, that they're not untidy because they associate incomplete or untidy reports to evidence of poor emergency medical care. You don't want to be down this road. Now that you're entering this field, you're also going to be known as a mandated reporter. By law, you have to report the abuse of children, older persons, and others. You got to report an injury that was essentially sustained during the commission of a felony. You have to let law enforcement know about any sexual assault or domestic violence. You also have to report exposures to infectious diseases, crime scenes, and deaths. These are all things that you are mandated to report. There are some specific time frames that we'll talk about in just a little bit, but just know that the things that EMTs get in trouble for is when they forget to report child or elder abuse, sexual assaults of their patients, and domestic violence. These are the things that are commonly that are common that an EMT can get in trouble for. Now, an EMT can find themselves in court for various different reasons. You could be in court because you're a witness or a defendant. The case could be a civil case, someone suing somebody, or it could be a criminal case. So, depending on what your role played, you could find yourself being subpoenaed by the court to, once again, be a witness in a case. This is why your paperwork plays such an important role and why it's so important for you to do your paperwork properly. Now, if you're a student that's not in L.A. County, you may not find the rest of this lecture important. We're going to be talking about L.A. County policies and protocols, but just a few of them. So there are some policies and protocols that you should be very familiar with as an EMT. And we will go through just a list of them, which you can look up at a later time. The first one is L.A. County Policy 814. This is the policy that determines as well as allows the paramedic to pronounce death in the field. Reference 815 is honoring the pre-hospital do not resuscitate orders. 819 is organ donor identification. 822 has to deal with suspect child abuse and neglect reporting guidelines. This is a very important one for you to know, especially if you work in L.A. County. Elder abuse and dependent adult abuse reporting is reference 823. Treatment and transport of minors is 832. Patient refusal of treatment or transport is 834. An application of 
application of patient restraints is 838. So let's break down determination, pronouncement of death in the field. Your patient has to be apneic, pulseless, and unresponsive. One or more of the following must exist. Decapitation, massive crush injury, penetrating or blunt injury with evisceration of the heart, lung, or brain, decomposition, incineration, extrication time is greater than 15 minutes without CPR, drowning victim submersion over one hour, rigor mortis, and post-mortem lividity. Now, decapitation speaks for itself. So, what is massive crush injury? Well, this means that the body is so crushed that there is no way the vital organs are intact and it's just impossible to perform CPR, CPR or give any type of medical attention. So, that's, the, that's that one. Penetrating or blunt injury with the evisceration of heart, lung, or brain. Well, in other words, the heart, lung, or brain are no longer where they're supposed to be, so thus there's not much that the medical professional can do. Decomposition speaks for itself. Incineration, bodies just what we refer to as a crispy critter. Sorry for that term, but it is what it is. So then the next one is extrication time greater than 15 minutes without CPR. So we have a patient who is pulseless inside of a vehicle that it's so crushed that it's going to take the fire department longer than 15 minutes to extricate that patient out, and we're unable to get ourselves into the vehicle to perform proper CPR. If this is the situation, then the person is considered to be dead in the field. We then have drowning victims, submersion over one hour. So we have the patient who's been underneath the water times one hour or greater, this patient is considered dead in the field. And then rigor mortis and lividity also speak for themselves. So these are the things that must be present for a patient to be called in the field and not to be resuscitated. Now normally, field death will be, or the test will be conducted by a paramedic. What the paramedic is looking for is, number one, there are no neurological reflexes. The second thing is, They confirm that apnea exists for over 30 seconds. And they also confirm the absence of a carotid pulse or brachial. And they will physically check for 60 seconds. And then they will listen with a stethoscope over the heart, which is considered a pickable, a pickle, apical pulse, which is conducted for 60 seconds. I do apologize for that. So if there is no neurological reflexes, Apnea has been confirmed for 30 seconds, as well as there's no physical pulse, nor can the paramedic hear a pulse for 60 seconds, the patient will be considered dead. Now, when I started in the field, there was no such thing as DNRs, do not resuscitate. And then when they did come about, there was so much confusion, confusion to them that we just didn't know what to do with them. What you did in LA County was different than Orange County, different than Riverside County. But today, that is not the case. We refer to DNRs as pre-hospital do not resuscitate orders. Now, these don't just mean we're not going to perform heroic measures on our patients. 
it means that we may perhaps have to provide certain care for our patients so at least they die with dignity and not in pain. So for an example, we may have someone who doesn't want any heroic measures such as CPR, but they don't want to drown in their own fluids or quite simply, they'll allow you to suction their airway so they don't aspirate and subsequently die from that. So you have to find the orders and you have to look at them to see what the patient's wishes are. Now, you will learn what these orders look like, when they're valid, not valid, but we always have, we have generally a few rules. If you're unable to identify the patient or you think the orders are not valid, then you start resuscitation and then you turn over to ALS. Let ALS make the determination if there's going to be no resuscitation or resuscitation. But at the very minimum, if you're not sure, it's better to be, it's better to err on the side of caution and start resuscitation. So now that we got that out of the way, let's jump into some legal stuff that can definitely get you into trouble if you don't properly report it. In this next segment, we're going to be talking about mandatory reporting. I would advise you that if you are not from the state of California, that you reference your state's laws as we will be discussing the pertinent laws in the state of California. The legal information we will be talking about pertains to the state of California. So if you're out of the state, I would advise you to check with your state's mandatory reporting requirements in regards to child abuse and child neglect. In the state of California, the EMT is considered a mandated reporter. And as such, if an EMT suspects any type of child abuse, they are to notify law enforcement immediately, especially if the child is in imminent danger. The EMT is required to make verbal notification to Children Protection Services within 24 hours or as soon as possible. Child Protective Services will give you a reference number, and this reference number should be indicated on your EMS reporting form. The EMT who has witnessed any type of child abuse and child neglect must also fill out a written report within 36 hours and submit that submit that to the Department of Children's Services. For the purposes of this podcast, just understand that you can mail this form in, you could also fax it, or you could submit it online. This information will be discussed in your actual lecture, and that information will be provided to you during that lecture as it is ever-changing. It is recommended that you keep a copy of this form for yourself, as well as mailing a copy to law enforcement. The agency that you would mail it to would be the agency to where the actual crime took place. So if you responded to a child's home where you feel the child abuse and child neglect may have taken place, this is the agency of where that city is at. That's the agency that you should send it to. The one thing you have to remember here is that this is suspected child abuse or child neglect. You can be wrong. And there's nothing wrong with that. We were advocates for our patients as well as advocates for children. And if we're wrong, it's okay. But think about if you're not wrong and you do nothing. You could potentially be saving the life of a child. Now, in regards to elder abuse slash dependent adult abuse, you are still a mandated reporter and you are to report any suspicion of elder abuse or neglect to Adult Protective Services or law enforcement immediately. 
this verbal notification is conducted ASAP. You have to fill out a written APS report within two business days. Once again, after you complete this mandated reporting, you should document it on your company's reporting forms and attach a copy of what you sent out to APS or law enforcement. All right, so now let's switch gears and let's talk consent. We will be talking about the consent that's required for the treatment and transportation of minors. When a guardian or parent is unavailable, any medical treatment or transportation that we perform on the minor patient is considered implied consent. Just for your edification, understand that infants will always be transported to a local hospital. The reason being is that any child that's 13 to 36 months require hospital contact in order to be released. You may be asking, well, why does an infant need to be transported as well as what's the requirement for a hospital to release a patient that's between the ages of 13 to 36 months? Well, these are guidelines that have been set forth in Los Angeles County. So as usual, we will caution you to check with your local LENSPA or local policies and procedures for the county that you're working in. Now, there are situations where minors are able to give consent. First, minors are able to give consent if they are married or they've been previously married, if they are active duty with the armed services, if they are self-sufficient, 15 years of age or older, living separate and apart from their parents, and managing their own finances. If your patient is an emancipated minor, they should have some court orders or an ID card from the, from the Department of Motor Vehicles. Now, there's one other area where minors are able to give consent as well. This will apply to our female minor patients. And our female minor patients are able to give consent as long as the care is related to the treatment or prevention of a pregnancy. They can also give consent when they're seeking care related to an abortion. This third criteria will apply to male and female minor patients, and this is for any type of care that's needed in regards to a sexual assault or rape. So, do you think it's over? No, not quite. We have a few other circumstances where minors are able to give consent. In this scenario, minors must be 12 years of age or older and in need of medical care for the following conditions. One, a communicable reported disease, prevention of a sexually transmitted disease, alcohol or substance abuse, or any outpatient mental health. Any of these four conditions, a minor of 12 years or older can give consent. Now let's switch gears. When can a patient refuse treatment or transport? First, they must be mentally competent. This is our first criteria. The patient must be alert and oriented to person, place, and time. So they have to know who they are, where they're at, and the time of day. The patient cannot present with any type of neurological deficits. The patient cannot have dysarthria, 
which is basically unable to articulate, maybe stuttering. So they have to be free of this. They cannot have an ataxic gait. So in other words, they can't be swaying or walking crooked, those type of things. Nor can they have any signs of a stroke. Now the one thing is, if your patient is legally able to refuse care, there are a few things that you want to do before you leave. Number one, you want to talk to them and make sure that they understand the ramifications regarding their decision. I would always tell my patient, Sir, ma'am, do you understand that if I leave you here, you could suffer further complications up to including dying? If they answered yes, then I would have them sign my AMA against medical advice form. And if there was a family member present, have them witness it. Prior to leaving, I would make sure that the patient knew that they can always call us back. As an EMT, you may find yourself in certain situations that you're going to have to put restraints on a patient. The only restraints that you can apply to a patient are hard or soft pre-manufactured restraints. You cannot make any type of restraints out of Curlix. That would be a big no-no as well as it will get you into trouble. So remember, your restraints have to be pre-manufactured. When you do apply restraints, you must assess the distal CMS every 15 minutes. CMS stands for circulation, motor, and sensory. In my lectures, I always call it PMS because that's what that's how I learned it, pulse, motor, sensory. But regardless of the acronym you use, CMS or PMS, you have to check this every 15 minutes of your patient and you must document it. Remember, documentation is your friend. If you don't write it down, it did not happen. When we do restrain our, our patients, we never restrain them prone. Remember, prone would be face down. It's that position that law enforcement officers put suspects in. This is a position we will never transport our patients in. And if your patient is handcuffed, the law enforcement officer must be present um, or at a very minimum riding directly behind you. Now, I always tell my EMT students, ask the officer for a handcuff key. Just tell them that you're going to need it just in case of an emergency. Um, you may even also ask the officers, hey, is there anyone that can, is there any chance that someone can ride with us? Especially if your patient is very violent. I have found nine times out of ten, law enforcement is willing to ride. Well, at least we are here, especially in Southern California. So when you are studying for your Block 1 exam, I would really go back and listen to the parts about consent and what is consent, the different types of consent, as well as who's able to give consent and for what reasons, as well as when can a patient pull their consent. Remember, you can have a competent adult who initially gives you consent for treatment. You can have them in back of the ambulance, transport them to the hospital, and then all of a sudden they say, hey, I don't want to go. Well, as long as they meet your criteria of being able to refuse consent, you have to let them out of the ambulance despite where you're at. So a patient can pull their consent at any time as long as they meet the criteria. Okay, let's talk about some ethics and morality. We can basically sum this up as what should we do when able? 
when people talk about ethics, it's amazing to see that there are just so many definitions out there and people's personal feelings on what ethics is. And as well as ethics changes from different professions. How law enforcement looks at ethics can be far different than how EMS looks at it. But for the purpose of this lecture, we're going to look at ethics as being that philosophy of right or wrong, it's your moral duties and ideas of professional behavior. I like to chalk it up to it's doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Now, ethics is different from morality. Morality is that code of conduct affecting character, conduct, and conscience. So a good way to think about this is your morality. Now, we teach an EMT to be safe. We teach you to use BSI, you know, cover your eyes, put gloves on your hands, use a pocket mask or a, a bag valve mask when you're giving um, respirations. But let's just say you come across a situation where you find a person down and you don't have any of this gear with you. Now, dependent on your morality, there may be those of you that decide that you're just going to activate 911 and wait for the EMTs and paramedics to get there. While others of you, based on your own personal morality, will decide that you're going to perform CPR even if it's could be detrimental to you because maybe the patient has some type of health problem. So that's how we could chalk up morality. The last thing is what we call bioethics. Bioethics are issues that are specifically related to issues that arise in the practice of healthcare. So how do these things apply to you? Well, your ethical responsibility is something that you really need to think about. In this field, you're required to apply two ethical standards. First, your own, and then those of your profession. You must be honest in your reporting, and you must keep accurate records. Those two things are going to keep you out of trouble. This last part of the lecture, we're going to be talking about the Los Angeles County Pre-Hospital Code of Ethics. In the class, this would be several slides that we would be identifying respect, caring, fairness, integrity. But since you don't have the benefit of the slide, I will be reading these for you so that you can hopefully visualize what the code of ethics are in L.A. County regarding pre-hospital EMS. So in the L.A. County pre-hospital code of ethics, it reads, The emergency medical services, EMS, system consists of healthcare professionals that include EMTs, paramedics, nurses, physicians, educators, and administrators. This code defines our ethical responsibilities and beliefs and the following principles for guiding practice. Respect. Recognize, acknowledge, listen, and encourage all members of the healthcare team. Uphold and maintain patient confidentiality and privacy. And last, honor the patient's rights and autonomy to make decisions regarding their medical care. Next, we have caring. First, we provide professional, compassionate, and competent care to all patients. Advocate for the patient's care needs. Participate and support the advancement of the EMS system through education, training, and continuous quality improvement. 
Last, support pre-hospital care research to validate, validate, improve, and promote evidence-based practice. Fairness. In fairness, we provide competent medical care to all persons with compassion and respect for human dignity regardless of nationality, race, creed, religion, sex, status, or financial consideration. We ensure justice by treating all individuals equally and fairly. And last, encourage and support impartiality in the delivery of patient care. I say that fast three times. Decisions should be absent of bias, prejudice, or benefit one person over another for improper reasons, but based on objective criteria. And last, we have integrity. We promote honesty, truthfulness, and consistency in action and practice by all members of the healthcare team. Demonstrate responsibility and accountability by maintaining licensure, certification, operating within one's scope of practice, and providing thorough documentation. Inspire fidelity by adhering to professional codes of ethics, following policies and procedures, ensuring team members are respectful, competent, and capable of performing duties and honoring agreements with patients and colleagues. And last, maintain trustworthiness and excellence in the delivery of patient care and medical practice. Well, this concludes your medical and legal lecture. What I'm now going to be doing is providing you some chapter questions to ascertain if you understand the material. So, for example, here's your first example test question. You arrive at a scene where an older woman is complaining of chest pain. In assessing her, she holds her arm out for you to take her blood pressure. This is an example of A. Implied consent B. Informed consent C. Express consent and D. Emergency consent I would press pause now, think about the question, and when you're ready for the answer, go ahead and press play. If you answered C, express consent, or as we know it, actual consent, you would be right. Remember, in express consent, quote-unquote actual consent, the patient doesn't have to verbally tell you that they want to be treated. Remember, some of our patients will not be able to talk to us, but by the patient extending their arm out, They are providing you that express consent because it's expressive that they want to be treated. So remember that expressive consent is them expressing it. They can express it through words. They can express it through their actions. So this is express consent. But once again, you may see it on a test question known as as actual consent as well. Okay, question number two. Which of the following is an example of abandonment? A. An EMT leaves the scene after a competent adult has refused care. B. An EMT transfers care of a patient to an emergency department nurse. C. An advanced EMT transfers care of a patient to a paramedic. Or D. An advanced EMT transfers care patient care to an EMT. If you answer D. An EMT transfers patient care to an EMT, you would be right. Remember, an AEMT is a higher level of care over an EMT, so they're only allowed to transfer care to someone that's higher than their certification, which would be a paramedic. This is the reason why. Question three. What are the four components of negligence? A. Duty to act, breach of duty, 
abandonment, injuries. B, duty to act, breach of duty, injuries, proximate cause. C, duty to act, injuries, abandonment, abandonment, proximation. Or D, duty to act, breach of duty, abandonment, proximate cause. If you answered B, duty to act, breach of duty, injuries, proximate cause, you would be right. Once again, there are just some things that you are going to have to memorize. This would be a 3x5 card. Next question. An 8-year-old boy was struck by a car, is unconscious, and is bleeding from the mouth. A police officer tells you that he is unable to contact the child's parents. You should A. Continue to treat the child and transport as soon as possible. B. Cease all treatment until the child's parents can be contacted. C. Continue with treatment only if authorized by medical control. Or D. Provide only airway management until the parents are contacted. If you answered A, continue to treat the child and transport as soon as possible, you would be right. We treat the patient under implied consent because it's implied that parents would want their child treated if they were on scene. Next question. Which of the following patients is competent and can legally refuse EMS care? A. A confused young female who states that she is president. B. A man who is staggering and states that he drank only three beers. C. A conscious and alert woman who is in severe pain from a broken leg. Or D. A diabetic patient who has slurred speech and is not aware of the date. If you answered C, a conscious and alert woman who is in severe pain from a broken leg, you would be correct. If you look at the patients in A, B, and D, you would notice that all three of these patients are suffering from neurological deficits and based on our criteria would not be eligible to refuse medical treatment. Next question. You're treating a patient with an apparent emotional crisis. After the patient refuses treatment, you tell him that you will call the police and have him restrained if he does not give you consent. Your actions in this case are an example of A. Assault B. Battery C. Negligence D. Abandonment The answer to this question is a little bit more difficult, but it is A. Assault The reason why it's assault is you are making a threat to the patient where you can physically harm them. So remember that. It would have been battery had you actually touched the patient. Last question. The EMT has a legal duty to act if he or she is A. Off-duty and witnessed a major car accident. B. A volunteer is on duty and is dispatched on a call. C. Paid for his or her services but is not on duty. Or D, out of his or her jurisdiction and sees a man choking. If you think back to your lecture, the answer to this would be B, a volunteer who is on duty and is dispatched to a call. Remember, because you're on duty, you have a duty to act. It doesn't matter if you're paid or not paid. So this is why it's the answer to this. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for medical and legal lecture number two. You should re-listen to this lecture in preparation for your first block exam, block one. If you recall, during the lecture, I referred to one item as being a 3x5 card. 
In my world, I say that there are just some things you need to remember. There's no rhyme or reason as to understanding them. So it's a three by five card. So when I say this is a three by five card, I recommend that you write down that material, memorize it, and have someone test you on this. There are just some things in the EMT world that need to be memorized. And no matter how we try to wrap our head around this, that's just what it is. Memory. Thank <laughs> you.